you know, the, the outpouring from the, from the recipients, I mean, it, it brings you to your knees in empathy for people. We all forget, you know, at this point in our lives, you know, we've been lucky. But I mean, I, I can remember being broke. You know, when you have no money and somebody gives you $100 or $200, uh, it really lifts you up. Are you new to working from home? Maybe you're figuring out how to manage a distributed team. Are you homeschooling your kids while trying to get something, anything else done? You've come to the right place. Work Life at Home talks with both newbies and experts as we explore the tools, tips, and techniques that will help you make the most of this new way of working. I'm Josh Freeman. Welcome home. So this is a conversation I've really been looking forward to. Ron Blitzer is a consultant, a CEO, a COO, and a serial entrepreneur. He co-founded American Soft Serve, which introduced a new way of making and storing ice cream. The first aseptic, shelf-stable dairy products used this way, and ended up supplying 3,000 Arco AMPM mini markets around the U.S. At its peak, their products represented 5% of the chain's total sales. In 2006, he started Be Green Packaging, which became an international player in the industry, creating recyclable and compostable packaging for takeout food services like Chipotle and Whole Foods and for products by Google, Samsung, and Gillette. During that time, Ron became active in the worldwide movement to reduce the use of plastic and help ease the environmental disaster it creates. He sold Be Green in 2013, but remains an active participant in environmentalist causes. He's also part of the Whole Planet Foundation, whose mission is to alleviate poverty through microcredit in communities worldwide, with a focus on the developing world. Ron and I have known each other since 1972. In our early 20s, we formed a design firm that created annual reports and entertainment industry graphics, branding, packaging, and marketing materials for corporate clients. He moved on, as you can tell, but we've remained friends ever since. Ron Blitzer, welcome to Work Life at Home. Thank you very much, Josh. Pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, it is nice. It's great. I'm really glad we're doing this. So let's start off with talking about your situation, particularly your pre-pandemic situation, but just your, your typical work setup, how you've been working and what you've been doing. Yeah, we don't. I guess we don't need to start in seventy eight, seventy nine. Freeman Blitzer <laughs> Associate, probably not. But it, but it is a good place to start because you know, Josh. You know, we had a, that first office in Santa Monica, and then we moved into that office in Century City. That was a big corporate scandal, right? Equity funding, yeah. and they had yeah. that, that extra office space. And it was in the seventies. That was a big deal to have a an office in Century City, right? And. uh been a long journey and I, and I, I frankly, I owe you so much because I, I was out doing the sales and marketing and you were designing things and you used to correct my letters and my <laughs> punctuation of my spelling. And I, yeah. you know, I was like going back to college working oh, with you. Oh my God. <laughs> um, Great. But, you know, and we would, we would do those early 
calls on clients. We're writing, designing, producing corporate annual reports. It was quite an experience. Certainly got my feet wet in business because I knew nothing about business whatsoever. And you definitely taught me a lot. So thanks for that. We had that. We had that. That bookkeeper, uh, Mindy Love. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, she, she was 90 years old in 1978. <laughs> but, uh-huh. you know, she had a pencil and, and a ledger, and she would just take care of the books to every penny. And, you know, we were schooled. And it was, it was a great experience in our customer base. We were young guys. We were 25 years old. My God, we, we, um, we bought a fax machine. That was like a huge deal. Oh, my God, yes. You remember how much? so expensive. I remember how much that cost. It was $3,000. Oh, my God. Which and, uh, now would be, what, 10, 15, something yeah, like that? Yeah, $30, <laughs> $3. You know, it's free. They give yeah, it to you. Yeah. But it was $3,000. We thought this was going to, well, it was the start of it. It changed the way we did business, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, you had to have a customer at the other end who had a similar machine, right? Mm-hmm. So he could receive yep. these faxes and, and design work. Of course, you were you were setting hot type, right? Uh, you could spec <laughs> type. And, and yep. actually, when I edit things, I still use some of those edit symbols that, frankly, you taught me about. So that, that, became, that was pretty valuable, valuable time because we got our hands into all kinds of industries, right? They were yeah. electronic industries and there were grocery stores. There were financial companies and there were fast food restaurants. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we had that beautiful space with those super graphics on the walls in, uh, in our offices in Century City. And, you know, everybody would go in there with a suit and tie every day. And we, we would really be in the thick of American business in the 70s and early 80s. Yeah. It was pretty cool stuff. But now things have changed a little bit, huh? Things have changed. Yeah. Things have changed quite a bit. Quite so a bit. Here you are. I know that you're involved with a bunch of different companies. And how are you how are you juggling all that stuff? And I assume I mean right now you're working at home, but I think you were doing all this from home anyway. Or mostly from home. How'd that go? In the eighties, I I started American Soft Serve. Arco was my largest customer, and I couldn't afford the rent downtown, so I moved into what is now known as as the Arts District, and and had a loft space, which ironically is very expensive now. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and really, my my experience with my first home office was after the uh, the L.A. riots and the Rodney King issue in Los Angeles. I moved from Los Angeles to Marin County and I kept my office in downtown LA, but all of a sudden I was working from home in in Marin County. And then I was commuting. You could fly between the Bay area and LA and maybe it was $50. I I purchased one of the first compact portable computers, you know, which could sit on an airplane tray. That was pretty cool. And a DOS system. And, uh, (laughs) and it was just amazing because I could, you know, file everything in, in my computer and I could carry it with me. It probably weighed 25 pounds. I think I had a cell phone. I'm sure I had mm-hmm. a cell phone because I had a cell phone when we were doing business in the late seventies in right. the car. But I, I, I was working at home. That was, that was a big deal. It was a, it was a hard thing to do. Uh, the employees didn't like it. 
the discipline of doing it was difficult, but I did it anyway. Yeah. So this would have been 1992 if it was after the Rodney King riots. Right. Right. 1992. And um, yeah, about 29 years ago. Um, And so that was my first office space. And then I stayed in 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 Marin County and uh, set up a fax machine, which was no longer three thousand dollars and worked on my mobile phone and had some technology that helped me uh, do business with people uh, around the country. And um, that was was what was happening in the 90s. Right. And um, then I moved back to uh, Southern California, moved to Santa Barbara. My wife didn't want me to, to work out of the house. So and I got a small office and did business for my office space. And then I started uh, B Green Packaging from my office above a garage in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build a business, which then you can only bring so many people over to your house every day to do work. Right. Um, and then so ended up getting a significant office. I had a great office at the uh, at B Green Packaging, had several good offices. Yeah, um, they were cool. But that all ends. And I, I sold B Green in 2014 or 15 and moved back home. And since 2015, I have been working from home and building businesses from home. And I have no plans to, uh, to go back and get an office. Not at all. You know, I, and I have tools now. You know, I, I've really scaled everything down. You know, I use scanners and I, I try not to have any paper around. And I use Monday and I use Slack. And before Zoom was around, I was using Skype and everything is outsourced. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm entrenched as a, as a home working person. There. So you went from having this office, you had a, you had a large staff, you had people working in other states. You had people in China. You basically were running this big operation. And then I know you stayed on as a kind of a consultant to them for a while. And then you you moved home. And how was the transition for you going from all those people around all the time to working solo? You know, actually, it's very difficult to do. You know, at the when I left B Green, we had 25 people in the office in Santa Barbara. Then I had a, a manufacturing facility in South Carolina, had 150 people and had an office there and had offices in China. And all of a sudden you find yourself standing there alone with your hands in your pocket. And you don't, you, you don't have the activity, you don't have people reporting to you, you don't have staff meetings in the same way. Frankly, you are standing there with your hands in your pocket. And you know, your, your game face is different. You know, when you have an office and you have a staff, and you walk in there, um, you got to have your game face on every mm-hmm. morning. Now you work at home, you know, it's a different mentality. What, you know, what I've learned to do is I, I get up, I shave, I get dressed. Sometimes I'll even wear a tie. But, you know, I play the role and, and I found that sense of discipline, keeping myself focused and scheduled. And, and that makes it much, much easier. And now with this Zoom, which while I use Skype in the past, Zoom I find to be just really interactive and easy to use. And, I mean, I hardly ever use Skype anymore. You know, you can pull people into conversations, and invite them while you're on Zoom. And it seems like everybody is working at home now because of the pandemic. 
Right. Um, and everyone now is available. Everybody is available. There's no excuse. You know, you used to be able to say, well, I'm on a plane, I'm traveling, I'm in a different time zone. You know, for the last 90 days, everybody has been available. And I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, you can be really productive and you can get things done. And then you also work too much, right? When you work at home, you have to learn when to turn it off. And are you good at doing that? No, frankly, I'm not. <laughs> okay. I'm not. I tend to work much later. I put in many, many more hours. You, you know, when you're at the desk, or you know, you, you just tend to be attracted to your workspace. I'm not that disciplined doing that. I, I tend to work many, many more hours from home. I do that as well. And I didn't know if that was just me, you know, because I've worked at home so much. Uh, but there is that tendency to gravitate toward it. It's just sitting there, you know, and you can just easily access your computer and you can answer a couple emails and then you kind of get sucked into a rabbit hole of work. And it's really important, I think, to stop and do other things and just get your head out of there for a minute and go for a walk or do anything, watch TV, talk to your spouse, talk to your kid, whatever it is, you got to not be staring at that screen all the time. Yeah, no, that, that, it, you know, but it's beyond the, you know, there's always some paperwork that to go through and then there's mail to go through. And, you know, then you get this idea in the middle of the night and let's go down to the desk and start writing something. And, but, you know, this is my passion and my love. So I, it's something I, I frankly enjoy doing. I don't, feel like this is hard labor. Right. right. I, I, right. I don't consider this. I mean, it's work, but it's all self-imposed activity. That's an interesting thing. Both of us have that. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that have that where your work is actually a form of creativity. It's almost like people who have hobbies and build ships or build airplanes or sew or whatever they do. You're, you're making something. And when you're in your own business, when you're, you know, being entrepreneurial or when you're even working as a consultant or whatever you're doing, there's a, a fulfillment in it. That's part of why you tend to be workaholic ish. You know, it's not like you're going to the office and never seeing your family. It's much more like you're, you know, you're creating something all the time. You're kind of, you're refining something and making something. And it's, I don't know, I find it sort of joyful. You know, like I don't have to be doing this podcast, you know, but this is fun and interesting and it's creative and, you know, connects you with interesting people. It's great. I know. I agree with you. I agree with you. It is creative. And, um, you know, it's our identity at this point, you know, what our businesses are and what our work is, and what our contributions are, how we interact with the community. That's a transition for you. Yeah. <laughs> How you yeah. interact with the community. Let's talk about that. So let me let me just sort of do a little summary of what you've been up to in that regard. So in 2017, Montecito, California, which is where you live, was devastated by fires. And then it was hit by a massive debris flow in January of 2018. And 23 people lost their lives in this thing. And over 130 homes were destroyed and 400 more were seriously damaged. So the community was virtually closed down for weeks on end. And domestic workers, restaurant employees, gas station service employees, gardeners, store clerks, they all lost hundreds of hours of work and all the pay that comes with it. And these are people who live paycheck to paycheck and really need the money. So 
you decided to do something about it and you set up the 93108 fund, which was designed to provide immediate financial support via grants to both the documented and undocumented hourly workers. The fund distributed over $345,000 to more than 900 individuals who lost wages during the business closures. And so now with COVID-19, you kick this into gear again and you've helped generate another quarter of a million dollars in aid for the hourly wage earners in that community. How the heck did you pull this off during such an isolated period in such a tough financial climate? Yeah, well, you know, ask a busy person to do something and uh, they'll find the time. Boy, that's uh, that was well said, Josh. Thank you for laying that out like that. Um, when you're in it, you don't really look at it like that. Um, look, I've been a, a serial entrepreneur, building businesses, employing people, employing hourly wage earners for 40 years. You know, I... I I understand the plight of people who are paid, whether it's $15 an hour or $35 an hour. Um, this is part of my business working DNA is working with and having people work for me uh, that you pay um, by the hour. Um, and so when we have that debris flow, and I lived right in the middle of it. It was to the east of me by two blocks. It was to the west of me by, by a quarter of a mile. It was massive destruction. Personally, we were in a, in a safe zone, but my wife and I were evacuated by the, uh, the National Guard wow. from our front yard. Wow. And, um, and, you know, it's like it was a, a pretty much of a helpless feeling. Like, what, what could you do? And what do you do? I, you know, I just came up with this idea. We live in a 93108 was our was our zip code. All the stores and what we call the lower village and upper village were closed down. A lot of businesses were damaged. And, and my heart, you know, went to the hourly wage earners, people I knew, people who worked at the gas station and the baristas at the coffee shop and people working in the clothing stores and the stationery stores and the hardware store. Um, you know, Montecito is a small community. It's, it's less than 10,000 people. And so I thought, thought about this fund and, you know, just went into high gear from my home office. While we were evacuated by the National Guard, we were able to get back in. And from that office, I just sprang this idea. And, you know, it's about resources and contacts and just network with people I knew to rapidly build a website. Frankly, I had a 501c3 nonprofit sitting on the shelf with an idea that uh, that I had with someone else and we weren't able to get it off the ground. So I had the, the instrument by which to, uh, to do this. Um, mm -hmm. I had some experience in building websites and marketing on the web. The town is so small, I was able to generate some publicity. Um, local news newscaster, local newspaper, some radio. And uh, at that time, you know, people from all over the country came in and helped us to, uh, to launch that 93108 fund. And uh, it was very successful. We were writing checks and giving out cash grants to hourly wage earners that 
that lost their jobs uh, or were laid off or their businesses were closed. You know, my just my personal skills and relationships with banks and, and uh, designers and writers and people in publicity. I just put a local team together. And, you know, what you would normally spend six months to a year doing, you know, we did it in five days. One of those wow. types of things. Yeah. And it worked. And then we raised all this money, gave it all out and said, OK, that's it. Um, and then COVID happened two years later. And um, once I secured my own family um, and we all came together at home, um, well, what was I going to do now? Because the businesses I had virtually stopped and then just start, started to talk to some people in the community. And we said, come on, let's do the 93108 again. And, uh, and then we launched it on, uh, I think it was, April the 3rd, called up the local news station. Uh, it's John Palmer Terry, the local newscaster up there, and he came me to the story on it. And uh, like magic, the money started to pour in. We had the infrastructure, redid the website, utilized PayPal. And this time we didn't distribute checks because in the past when we were doing checks to individuals, uh, they'd go to the bank and they would cash it. But now the bank... You know, their doors were locked. They didn't want people coming in. Yeah. They found a credit card company called Omni Credit Cards, and they issued us these great debit cards. And we've been manufacturing, the, you know, the, the debit cards and distributing them and raising money. Then the retailers came to us in Montecito and said, God, we got to do something. We need some help. So we, we did the same kind of format of launching a website and getting some publicity, and we raised about I don't know, $180,000 for the retailers in town. So now we've, we've given the retailers money. And, and that, for the retailers, it was uh, people were buying gift certificates. So they'd buy gift certificates for their restaurants or clothing store or the nail salon. So we were able to put money together for, for the retailers. And then we were able to, to help, uh, of course, the hourly wage earners. And it, it, it's been really uh, personally rewarding, and it's been a, a good hit for the community. We put about $400,000 into the local community wow. and uh, the local economy. And, uh, and literally this week, we're, we're closing 93108 done. Our job is done. It's a lot of work it's, with a lot of great people helping in the community, men, women, college kids, distribution. You know, it has all the touch points of a of a business, and it helped all of us who did this psychologically. Good point. Now yeah. we've got the civil unrest, and you know, <laughs> the world's been turned upside down. Are you seeing civil unrest in Santa Barbara? No. Okay. No. But it's no. been 140 cities around the country. It's a lot of cities. It's a lot of pissed off people. Yeah. No, there are, and, and rightfully so. Yeah. Rightfully so. I mean, I, I thought COVID that, you know, after COVID that there would be some civil unrest. There's 40 million people out of work. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in our 93108 fund, we would be giving hourly wage earners $100 debit cards. $100. Yeah. And for many people, this was transformational. 
you know, it paid an electricity bill. It bought them some gas. It bought them some food. It bought them diapers for their children. Yeah. Um, it gave them hope. A hundred dollars. And um, and at the same time, you you can't live on a hundred dollars. It's like I mean, it's great. It's great to support the community, but that's not going to solve a crisis like this. You know, on at that level. Right. I mean, it's fantastic. But you know, the the outpouring from the from the recipients. I mean, it it brings you to your knees in empathy for people. You know, yeah. we all forget. You know, at this point in our lives, you know, we've been lucky. But I mean, I, I can remember being broke. You know, when you have no money and somebody gives you a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. uh, it really lifts you up. Yeah. And um, and you know, you mentioned undocumented workers and documented workers. We we just asked for their their name and email address, and uh, it was pretty easy for people to apply and and receive these grants. But you know, this has been going on now with COVID for ninety days. And, you know, if there was any government aid, that's kind of run out really quickly. So mm-hmm. this civil disobedience and, you know, what's happening all over the country, it doesn't surprise me. It, it, to me, it's an outgrowth of, of COVID. Yeah. The economic dislocation that's going on. Yeah. And it's going to go on for a while. I don't think it's close to over yet. We'll see. I mean, stores are opening and all that. That's great. But it doesn't stop the virus that just people are oh nervous my God, about you know, it as I mean, they should be. Yeah. You know, when you when you just think about how however they were guiding us to open up again, uh, all that went out of went out the window. Right. Because now people are gathering in close, close proximity of each other. So there's no social distancing. This is a pretty serious time. Pretty serious yes. time. Yeah. And it, it's the time to have a conversation that we all need about racism and systemic racism and uh, and business and what we're all doing within the business community to be aware of it and maybe make some change. You know, for us, I mean, our time is over, but for our children, uh, this is their world. And uh, I'm really proud of the people that are, are out marching. I, as a matter of fact, I'm in L.A. right now. I I want to I want to participate. I don't know if this has to do with working at home. Not, I don't either, but it's just, you know, this is what's going on in the world. And I feel like what I started this for was to help people who were new to doing this, to working at home. And I knew there's like, you know, millions of people who suddenly find themselves in this position. And that's, you know, following what's going on in the world. That's That was what my motivation was, was sort of the same thing as the as the fund. It's like, how can I make something that will help a whole bunch of people. You know, what do they maybe need right now? And so I thought, well, they might need some support for doing this. So that's what the genesis of this was. But the world is changing and it's changing really fast. And if we can talk about some of this stuff in some kind of a constructive way or encourage people, what the hell, you know, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent on topic. It's like, (laughs) I hope somebody knows that two old white guys are thinking about this and, and wanting it to be different and doing things that are constructive and, you know, trying to get the word out. And and people maybe don't feel so isolated and so uh, unsupported, you know, because right now I'm, I think if you're black, besides being angry, you feel hopeless and hopelessness engenders all this. I, I'm in total agreement with you. And of course, you know, we've we've seen similar types of social unrest in our lives. 
right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. at this level, I think during the Vietnam War, campuses exploding all over the country. Yeah. the hell out of our parents. Yes, uh, but we were in the middle of it. it. <laughs> we were, <laughs> we were in the doing middle it. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I can remember being in some pretty serious situations in Berkeley and Stanford at UCLA. Mm-hmm. I, you know, but now I'm looking at my son, you know, who him and his girlfriend were, were in Santa Barbara with us in isolation during COVID. And now they're, they're back in LA because uh, they feel a responsibility to help educate people and educate themselves. And, you know, we've been spending a lot of time at dinner lately talking about the systemic racism. And now my kid's looking at me and saying, really, dad, like, what have you done? You know, (laughs) you know, and, and, you know, I'm feeling like a white liberal guy, uh, enlightened white liberal guy who's run businesses and hired a lot of people. You know, I had a great experience when I did be green. We opened up a factory in South Carolina. Yeah. Uh, in the poorest county in South Carolina, in Ridgeland, South Carolina, 60% African American. What I found really interesting doing that business in South Carolina, I would go to these social events or business events, and the integration of blacks and whites in the South, it was like an eye opener to me because it was very well integrated and people were communicating, people were always together uh, and it was multicultural and it, you know, it just was the way it was in at least where I was in South Carolina, not coming from California. I, I never experienced that. I don't have handfuls of African-American or brown skin friends. I, you know, I, I it's just the way it is, mm-hmm. but uh you know, these, this is really interesting. It is. And it's a cliche, I guess, about the South that, that there is not integration. I mean, obviously there's also tremendous racism, but there's tremendous racism all over the place in LA, in Boston, in, you know, Chicago, everywhere. So painting large swaths of the country with that brush is probably stupid and useless. And really, it's such an individual thing. It's like I was thinking about that this morning about how, you know, you grow up. It's about modeling. It's about it's about seeing uh, who I can't remember who wrote this, but I was reading an article that said it's about like you're driving around and do your parents, you know, lock their car door as they're driving through a black community? Do they cross the street? Do they you know, how do they talk at the dinner table? What do they say when grandpa makes some kind of racist remark? It's it's that that little stuff. That's what kids pick up on. And that's what makes people have a certain attitude. And then it's so ingrained and it's just it amazes me myself. I like I I certainly don't consider myself a racist, but I also see my own, you know, like like childish. I don't know what you'd even say, but these kind of kind of knee jerk reactions that I don't want, (laughs) like I want to chase out of my brain. But they're but they happen. And it's like uh, people need to acknowledge, I think, what's going on psychologically with themselves, with other people like themselves. I think there's racism, certainly the other way. I think that, you know, black people see white people as as threatening or all racist or they have these kind of giant labels. They stick on people just like everybody does that. You know, Asians do it. White people do it. You know, different ethnicities do it. It's just a 
it's a creepy part of human culture. And so knowing that and coming out with it and saying we need to change this and really starting from childhood and and creating an environment where it's demonstrably not the way to behave. I think that's what's going to change it in the long run. And 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 business has business people have an opportunity to make an impact. Absolutely. You know, I mean, economic advantages for people of color, uh, hiring of eliminating this glass ceiling. Um, you know, we, we as business people have a responsibility to do this. And while we think we are open-minded, liberal, enlightened, triple bottom line business people, I'm now looking at some of the decisions I've made. I mean, I'm really glad I had my South Carolina experience. But even in South Carolina, I had to talk to my board all the time. I was always yelling at my board going, you know, come on, we, we need we need people of color on this board. We need more women in this office here. I mean, I like to tell this story. This is a good story, Doug. Mm. Um, you know, I sold the company to a private equity firm. Right. And the first person I hired uh, in South Carolina uh, was a woman by the name of Viola. And uh, she was probably 62, 63 years old, African-American. Had grown up in, in Ridgeland, South Carolina. Her grandparents were slaves in the South. Wow. She didn't have many office skills. And we had this large grand opening. And my God, Nikki Haley was there. And the press was there. And everybody cleared out. And there was Viola standing there saying, I want to work here. I grew up here. I, I know this community. I can really do you some good. I, I'd like to have a job. And I hired her. Yeah. She didn't know how to turn on a computer, but she was the salt of the earth. And I used to bring in major customers from Procter & Gamble, from Chipotle, from Samsung. And we'd have these big meetings. And there was Viola. And she would receive people. And she was the hostess. And she'd make people comfortable. You know, when, when people left, she would, she would say to them, come here, honey, give me some sugar. And she would be hugging these people from these corporations. You know, they'd all be like in shock. And all they oh, would ever talk great. about was Viola, Viola, Viola. And she was really the face of Be Green in, in South Carolina. And then after I sold the company, you know, they, you know, this is private equity. They just go into debt. And they don't care about people. And I got a call one day from her and, and they had, terminated her right mm -hmm. and they terminated her because they said oh you know we need to save some money and you know we're a cost-cutting thing viola was making six hundred dollars a week i it, it got me so upset it got me so upset that you know these private equity balding white guys you know who would spend six hundred dollars on a lunch would yeah. have the audacity to terminate this woman I, you know it it, it really just offended me. It offended me. And that whole South Carolina experience, I, I was, I was the minority there. I can tell you that in my own factory, but just really smart, focused, dedicated people that uh, I had working for me there. And the majority of them were African-American. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I got them into management positions and everybody excelled. They excelled. 
Um, I don't have that opportunity in California, at least in the places I do business, because I'm, I'm doing business that, you know, just on the phones and, I'm, you know, I'm importing things from China. So I'm not hiring a lot of people like that. But that was a good experience. For me. Sounds amazing. Well, it's a weird time. And uh, I, I appreciate your taking the time to do this. And uh, I hope people get some value and some insight out of this. And in any case, it's been really good to spend some time with you and catch up with this and, and talk about yeah. some of this stuff. I don't know how so you're going to edit this down. I don't know what you're going to say, but no, thank you for <laughs> the opportunity to, to share it. Um, it's nice that we recorded some of our history here, Josh, yeah. and that our children and grandchildren could one day listen to this and go, Oh, that's what happened. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's what and, and, and the dates, for some reason, they don't agree on the dates. What's the deal? <laughs> it's yeah. funny. Right. Oh, well. So, okay. Where can people reach you online if they want to follow up with this? Uh, I'm, I'm a LinkedIn guy. Ron Blitzer. LinkedIn. Great. All right. That's easy. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk. Thank you. Well, that's it for now. If you're new to working from home, you might want to check out worklifeathome.com, where you'll find articles, show notes, and best of all, a community where you can ask questions and get some answers from people who've been doing this a while. We'd love to see you there. And I would be thrilled to hear what you think and find out who else you'd like to hear from on the show. You can email me at josh at worklifeathome.com. If you're enjoying Work Life at Home, please do let your friends and co-workers know so they can subscribe. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon.